thank you. That'd be just for me or for every other? Can I? You beat me to it. Actually, you reminded me. I was reading this week uh, in a book I'm studying for preaching called Christian Preaching by Brian Chapel. He says at one point, pastors can forget Father's Day, but they better not forget Mother's Day. <laughs> Father's Day just doesn't have the same doesn't have the same meaning, does it? I passed by the flower stand this morning, and on Mother's Day, the flower stand is quadruple the size. There was only a couple bouquets out there. I heard the breakfast was really good. I did have some. I wanted to be there. Trust me, I wanted to be there. But this morning's sermon is very, very important, and I needed to finish it up. So I trust that you will, on my behalf, eat a double portion of eggs. I did have a little bit of the eggs. They were pretty good. In my house, I just put a little bit of salt, but you guys chop up vegetables, and there's seasoning in it. I didn't know you could put all those things in eggs. Salt, I thought, was all you could do. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Luke chapter 13, 1 through 5. Trust me when I tell you this sermon has weighed heavy on my hearts all week. And early on, I began to ask, probably as soon as last Sunday morning after Sunday school, I began to ask, oh boy, do I need to talk about what happened in Orlando? It's a very touchy subject, right? It's a very touchy subject, one that I have no right to shy away from and not touch. So I'm going to touch it this morning. So I pray that you will pray along with me and listen intently and carefully as I attempt to explain something very, very nuanced and very important for our day. We just sang, Jesus saves. And we repeated it. And we raised our hands to praise him. And to glorify him and to make it known to everyone here that Jesus saves. Amen. The question is do we live like Jesus saves? Do we live our entire lives and our entire salvation? on the claim that Jesus saves. Have we reverted back to dead works? Assuming that because we have lived holy lives, that holy lives save? That the right race saves? Or that the right amount of wealth saves? We say we don't. The question is, do we say what we say and what we believe? Do those two things correspond? And sensitive hearts to the gospel always ask the question, do my words correspond with my heart's beliefs? I want to say this morning, at the very beginning, that I agree with this statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not or do not be deceived? Neither sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. You can include women in that phrase as well. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified from stopping those sins? Is that what the verse says? No. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in a name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus saves. Our passage this morning is in Luke 13, 1 through 5. Jesus has now set his face towards Jerusalem. A saying that Luke uses to describe Christ's mission to the cross. As he journeys from Galilee, Jesus' main mission was to preach the repentance from sin and dead works and to receive the good news of the gospel of his salvation. At this point in the story where we find our passage, Jesus is moving right along, challenging the religion and moral thinking of the day by upending any and all preconceived notions of what true righteousness and true religion really are. Pharisees, lawyers, the wealthy, even a claim to the holiness of the womb that bore him are all in Jesus' crosshairs. Nothing and no one has true religion. Nothing and no one has true righteousness but Jesus himself. His theme is simple. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Read with me, if you would, at Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Would you pray with me this morning? God, give me clarity to preach this sermon this morning. Give us the ability to hear this sermon this morning. And give us the willingness to apply it in our lives. Let your word change our hearts. Amen. What a week of hate this has been. Mankind has taken off his mask and revealed his sin-sick visage. 
Our world was rocked last Sunday morning as news spread of the deadliest or most deadly mass shooting in our nation's history. 49 dead, possibly hundreds wounded, families destroyed, a nation shaken, and a country divided. The terrorists won a battle last morning or last Sunday morning. Not with murder, but with division. And we all helped him. Our nation is dividing. Before anyone had time to even digest the reality of such a heinous act, social media had already drawn sides over gun control and homophobia and divine justice and political negligence and even the war on terror. No one even had time to weep. The Muslim had to defend himself against anti-Muslim hatred. The homosexual had to defend herself against the condemnation from religious extremism. The Christian had to defend off attacks from the LGBT community. And all the while, bullet-ridden and bloody bodies weren't even cold yet. Many Muslims were afraid that they would be viewed as terrorists. Christians were afraid that they would be blamed for creating a homophobic climate. And gay and lesbian people were afraid for their lives. But instead of wrapping both our arms around our neighbor in their hour of greatest need, we all picked up our flags and pointed our fingers. I spent this past week trying to answer this one question. How would Jesus have reacted to the news of the Orlando massacre? Not that I needed to know how Jesus would grieve to see whether or not he was a sensitive savior. The Bible says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. It was that I needed my own sin corrected and my own emotions directed. I needed to know how Jesus, the truest example of humanity that ever walked this earth, would have responded to this event so that my own personal prejudices and my own biases would not hinder a spirit-filled response. Here's what I learned. I learned that Jesus wants me to love everyone I meet with the gospel of salvation in Christ alone. Now listen to that. Listen to what I said. I learned that Jesus wants me to love everyone I meet with the gospel of salvation in Christ alone. Sometimes Christians are afraid to talk about love. If, if I asked you, what is the chief principle of the gospel? Many of us would say justification by faith or salvation in Christ alone. But most of us wouldn't use the word love because that feels too, too emotional or it feels too liberal or it feels like we might be condoning a lifestyle that the Bible doesn't condone. But Jesus said that the greatest commandment can be fulfilled by loving God and by loving neighbor. Neighbor means anyone who's not you. That's what neighbor means. 
And we're all more responsible because we have more neighbors than we ever had through the advent of social media and the internet. I used to only have a couple friends. Now I've got 14, 1,500. Now we've got all the neighbors we should ever have or should ever want to have, and we have a greater responsibility than to love them. And as you know on social media, and as you know just in the world that we're living in, there are various disputes and opinions. I learned that God wants me to love everyone I meet with the gospel of salvation in Christ alone. Why? Because everyone has been created in the image of God. Gay, straight, lesbian, transgender, Christian and Catholic, pastor and pope are all created in God's image. I learned that God's image has been distorted. Gay, straight, lesbian, transgender, Muslim and murderer, Christian and Catholic, pastor and pope are all sinners in need of repentance. I learned that God's image can be used to do great evil. And I learned that unless we all repent, we shall all likewise perish. I want this to be the theme of this morning's message. Here's the goal. I'm going to break it down into three points. Stop hating people out of personal prejudice and start loving people with the gospel. If you have to write that down, write that down. This is the point I want to make this morning. Stop hating people out of personal prejudice and start loving them with the gospel. My first point this morning I want to glean from this passage is this. Jesus wants to rebuke a wrong presupposition. What is that presupposition? We must never presuppose that some people need to repent while others don't. Because people assume by nature and sin that they are less sinful and more righteous than other people, Jesus presumes the arrogance in the question asked by the crowd about those who were murdered by Pilate while offering sacrifices at the temple. Here's what he says in verses 2 and 4. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? You see where I'm going? Do you think that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? John Calvin says about this passage, It is highly useful were it for no other reason than that the disease is almost natural to us to be too rigorous and severe in judging of others and too much disposed to flatter our own faults. The consequence is that we not only censure with excessive severity the offenses of our fellow humans, but whenever they meet with any calamity, we condemn them as wicked and reprobate persons. He wrote that 500 years ago. 
but that is relevant for today. The two events that were real events that are mentioned in this passage, Jesus is having a discussion with the crowd about two tragedies that were well known to everyone. The first tragedy is a tragedy of sinful evil or moral evil. Pilate, who was well known amongst Jews as a mass murderer, he would go in and he would slaughter and strike down. Anytime Jews would rise up and revolt, he would slaughter them. And he would make it very clear to everyone he will not tolerate any kind of rebellion. Apparently, we don't know much about this event, but apparently some men who were of the Jews had gone to offer sacrifice and they had fallen into a dispute with Pilate. And while they were offering sacrifices at the temple, Pilate sent men and killed them and their bloods were mixed. Their blood was mixed with their sacrifice. This would have nullified their sacrifice and put them in danger of not just, of course, they died, but not just their physical death, but also their eternal death. And the crowd asked the question, those people who died that Pilate killed? Their assumption is told to us when Jesus says, do you think that because of the manner in which they died, that they were less sinful than every other Galilean living in that day? Their base assumption is that these men, had they been righteous people, would have never died like that. I've heard pastors say before, your loved one has died the way they lived. Don't ever say that, Christian, because the cross you wear around your neck is an instrument of torture for the worst criminals ever, and your Savior was put on that cross. Men die the way God determines them to die, when God determines them to die, and how God determines them to die. And it is not based upon how righteous they are before Him. Certainly when people are murdered, you might be able to say, though, that Maybe this was an evil act that could have been avoided. Or that maybe they even had it coming to them. But Jesus says, what about the 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Were they too more wicked than the rest of people living in Jerusalem at the time? That evil was just simply a natural evil. Those men were just simply there by the tower. And a tower fell on them and they died. No evil was done, just poor engineering. Jesus says, do we take away how they died by assuming that they were less righteous than you? That was the real question. This past week offered the grave temptation to see the massacre and club pulse as something that was warranted by the sin of the people who were there. How many of us either thought in our hearts or said to someone else, hopefully not on social media, John and I prayed together, God, don't let, please, God, don't let Christians say stupid things on social media. God had different plans, though. How many of us either thought in our hearts or said to someone else what happened to them was God's judgment for their sin? 
don't incriminate yourself. How many of us were just as guilty as the crowd was in our passage this morning by assuming that they were less righteous because they were homosexual? Like Jesus, let me ask you this question. Do you think that those 49 people who were murdered last week were worse sinners than you and I because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless every one of us repents, we will all likewise perish. How about the child who was dragged into the water by an alligator while playing by the lake? Did that child live a more unrighteous life or did his parents live a more unrighteous life than you and I? No. But I tell you, unless we too repent, we will all likewise perish. If you found yourself ensnared by this temptation over the past week, I want to free you from it this morning in this way. Quote-unquote good people and quote-unquote bad people, gay people and straight people, women and men, Jews and Muslims, Christians and pastors and popes all die when God intends them to die, how he intends them to die, and where he intends them to die. The Bible tells us that God blesses both the righteous and the unrighteous. He will determine the blessings he gives to men. And he doesn't do it any to end to any of us according to our righteousness. Why? Because unless we all repent, we too will all likewise perish. Jesus saves, right? That means he saves us the way he saves you. And he saves us the way he saves gay people. And he saves us the way he saves Muslims. And he saves, he saves people who are open-minded the way he saves people who are closed-minded. And how they live and what happens is never a way for us to say they must be more righteous. None of us are. Jesus saves. What does our death have to do with our worthiness before God? Do we assume that our wealth or that our race or that our religion is what makes us righteous in the eyes of God? No, unless we all repent, we shall all likewise perish. Number two, I want to correct a wrong practice. And that's this. We must never withhold the gospel or withdraw from persons we deem as unrighteous. We must never withhold the gospel or withdraw from persons we deem as unrighteous. The two questions that Jesus asked the crowd had an immediate application in their own lives, namely that they all needed to repent. But the question also has a further implication, and that is this. No one, no matter their nationality, their sexuality, or their sin, is unworthy of hearing the gospel. Furthermore, no believer has the right to withhold that gospel or withdraw from people they don't like or they think are too unrighteous to hear the message of salvation. Why? Because Jesus did this. Turn with me real quickly to John chapter 4, the gospel of John chapter 4. 
Read along with me. John 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus is going from south to north, and the travel is about 60 to 65 miles. It's going to take about two to three days' journey to get there. Depending on the route you take, the most obvious route from South Judea all the way to Galilee, up by the Sea of Galilee, would have been to pass through Samaria. But Jews would often go 20 miles out of their way and walk up alongside the Jordan River to avoid going through Samaria. Why? Jews hated Samaritans. Not only did they hate Samaritans, but they thought that any kind of socialization with Samaritans would make their spirituality unclean. So they would avoid it. So when we read this passage, just for a second, I want you to see what's going on here. Jesus going through Samaria is a big, big deal. He is bucking all the stereotypes of what Jews are supposed to be, especially religious Jews, because he's not afraid to mingle with lost people. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Not only is he not afraid to go through Samaria, he's not afraid to talk with the people there. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The parentheses here, John tells us, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She wants to know, why would a Jew be talking to me? That's not, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Don't you know Christians aren't supposed to talk with homosexuals? Don't you know that? Don't you know Christians aren't to talk with prostitutes? Don't you know that? But you know, Christians aren't supposed to talk with people who live sexually immoral lives. She's asking that question. She even believes that Jews are more righteous than Samaritans because she believes that Jews are, she knows in her heart of hearts, that they've got the right religion. And she asks the question, why would you be talking to me? How can you even socialize with me? You're a Jew. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that's saying this to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? It's an ironic question. She's concerned with physical water, and Jesus is concerned with eternal and spiritual water. Are you greater than our father Jacob? An ironic question. Yes, he is. He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. In other words, Jacob gave us a water that's given us, that's been able to give us and quench our thirst up until this point. Will you give us something greater than this well has been able to provide? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus says to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She doesn't say anything about what he just said. She doesn't say, I agree with your condemnation. We're not even sure that he's condemning it. All we know is that he knows something about her lifestyle. You've got five husbands. But no, notice that nothing is said about her lifestyle right here by Jesus or the woman. Sir, I notice that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, in this place, where people ought to worship. Jesus never said that. He never said that people ought to worship in Jerusalem. She's assuming that Jews, that Jesus is a typical Jew, He's a typical rabbi, he's a typical prophet, and he wants to convert her to being Jewish. That there's not something more special going on than getting her to accept the right religion or getting her to repent of her evil ways and her sexual immorality. Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. How is it from the Jews? It has come through a Jewish Messiah. But the hour is coming and now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The conclusion of this story is that Jesus is calling her to him. That is the gospel message. A call for everyone to a man. Christian, don't cheapen the gospel by moralizing it. Don't peddle out a cheap morality and say, stop living this way. Come and be a Baptist at my church. Call them to Jesus This woman's real problem is not that she has a wrong religion or that she's even sexually immoral. Her real problem is that every opportunity Jesus gives her, she tries to run away. The first question when Jesus says to her, tells her about the five husbands, she says, I see you're a prophet. Doesn't even want to know what Jesus has to offer. The second she assumes that Jesus has has told her that worship or true worship is at the the hill of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, it's in spirit and truth. And then she says, finally, you know, you're saying a lot of good things. But ultimately, there's going to be another person, another Savior. I'll wait, Jesus. You're not the Savior I'm looking for. Her problem is rebellion. 
There is an application for here. At the end of the story, when the disciples come back, they marvel that Jesus would talk with this woman. The woman had three strikes against her. Number one, she was the wrong race and religion. She was a Samaritan. The disciples couldn't figure out why Jesus would be talking with a Samaritan. Not only that, but she's the wrong gender. She's a woman. Jews didn't talk with women in public. They wouldn't even talk with their wives in public, let alone discuss theological truths in public. And lastly, she was sexually immoral. She had five husbands. Why were they marveling? Because they had yet to understand that the gospel is for all people everywhere. In their minds, Jesus should have withdrawn from her. In their minds, she was unworthy. Every one of us comes to the table with our own personal prejudices. I've learned this after living in Miami my entire life. It's not just whites and blacks who hate each other. Every last one of us has got some personal prejudice against some group of people. Every last one of us. Democrats hate Republicans. Gays and straights don't like each other. Blacks and whites don't like each other. Haitians have their personal prejudices. Jamaicans have their personal prejudices. Cubans have their personal prejudices. All of us come to the table with this. But Jesus teaches that our worthiness before God is found only in our repentance and reliance on him. The story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman definitely challenges our personal prejudices. Ask yourself this morning, what type of people do I avoid talking to about the gospel because of my own personal prejudices? Lastly, I want to say this. Our passage this morning teaches us that we must be trained in righteousness. Like Jesus, we must also love others with the gospel. When Paul told Timothy that all scripture was useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, he had in mind that the whole Bible would be our ultimate guide for living. The last item in the list, training, is used by Paul to exhort believers to create new patterns of righteousness in their life. To live a different way. We know this morning that we've had to rebuke the belief that some people are in need of repentance and others aren't. And since we now know that, that we must correct this tendency, we have to correct it and not withhold the gospel or withdraw from people that we deem less righteous. The question is now, how can we train ourselves to stop hating and start loving everyone with the gospel? If you look back at our story in John 4, 21, Jesus says this to the woman. Woman, believe me. The word in the Greek here has the thrust of this. Believe in me or believe in what I am saying. The question for us then is this. What is Jesus really saying to her? Is Jesus concerned with her sexual immorality here? Not so much. This is not to say that Jesus doesn't care about the way we live, but her problem is not that she's a Samaritan or that she's living a sexually immoral life. Her problem is that she needs to repent and believe in him. Think of the story of the rich young ruler. He had lived a righteous and perfect life. He told Jesus, Jesus, I've done everything perfectly. I've kept all of the Ten Commandments, and I've never broken any of them. And Jesus said to the rich young ruler, fine, sell all you have and follow me. 
Every last one of us, even the people we deem to be the most righteous, the best of us, the wealthiest, the holiest of the right race, unless we all likewise repent, we shall all perish. Jesus' call is simple. I am the Messiah. I have died for you. Take up your cross and follow me. We need to love others with that same message. We've been called to make disciples of Christ, not of ourselves. This should free us to love others as they are and to let them grow in Christ as the Spirit challenges them from reading of the Word. Too many Christians are trying to convince people, especially on social media, that gun control is best or Republicans are right and homosexuality is wrong. We're trying to do the Spirit's job and not our own job, which is to lead people to Jesus. Once they get there, they'll figure the rest out. You're trying to be their Holy Spirit. Don't be. Our call to the world is this. Repent and follow Jesus. But we're robbing repentance of its meaning and of its power when we sell it as nothing more than live this way. Repentance means putting your faith in Jesus. And as someone has defined faith, it means this. Forsaking all, I take him. This means that we don't try to convert people to be Baptist. It means that we don't try to convert people to be heterosexual. It means that we don't try to convert people to be good, Im good Americans. Instead, we challenge everyone with the gospel of Jesus to forsake their right to rule their lives and to let Christ be Lord. That's the challenge. Christian, you cheapen the gospel when you tell non-believers, just stop doing this. No. The message is not one of negation. It's start following Him. The Lord has taught us that unless we all repent, we will all likewise perish. He practiced this when He took the gospel to everyone, no matter their race, no matter their religion, and no matter their sin. Jesus didn't tell the woman to go and get married. He told her to believe me. He knew that the disease of sin can only be done away with when we trust in him. If you really want to see sin corrected, which ultimately we do, if you really want to see righteousness and transformation, give them the bread of life. They need living water. They're thirsty. He knew that good people and bad people alike all needed to repent or they would all likewise perish. This is our call this morning. To the believer, stop hating others out of your personal prejudice and start loving them with the gospel. This week and forevermore when you evangelize, make disciples of Jesus and not of yourself. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I thank you for what you transformed in me. 
Lord, I knew I was a sinner, and so many of us, all of us who are believers, knew we were sinners when we came to you. We didn't know how bad we were. You couldn't have revealed it to us at that time. You couldn't have handled it. We knew that we were bad, though, God, and we knew that we needed living water. You came to us when we were in the worst part of our life, and you offered us to drink of living water, and we were thirsty. We didn't want to thirst again, but none of us knew how thirsty we were. Jesus, you called us to follow you. And as we've grown in our righteousness, we've been made aware of sin in our life. As we've tried to live like you and after you. Lord, so many of us have grown and are growing and are struggling right this very day with sin. Lord, don't let the homosexual community buy the false teaching that they're the only ones who have to give something up Every one of us gave something up for you. Every one of us died to ourselves and said, Jesus, you be Lord of our lives. They're not the only ones. None of us were worthy when we came to you. Jesus, I pray that you would transform their hearts. Let them see their need to drink of the living water and to be one with you. Lord, your Holy Spirit will convict them of sin. Lord, let them drink of your cup. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you and I are one, and that all my unrighteousness 